This is Kelly Carlin, and welcome to Waking from the American Dream. One, two, three. There is one whom I have wronged, and he looks at me angrily. This bothers me. No matter what I do, I offer my apologies. Always he ignores my pleas, but I ask myself what the better man would do. He would forgive me, so I'll forgive me too. There have been so many times that I have felt so low. I would rather die than look at me from someone else's view. And always there were those who would gladly tell me I'm no good. But I ask myself what the better man would do. He would love me, so I will love me too. I've been ashamed of the life that I've been living. Take my hand, tell me I'm forgiven. That I've been living. So take my hand and tell me I'm forgiven. So if you're walking down the street and you see a soul who's in defeat, don't you pass him by? No matter what you do. Brother, don't you understand that when you land a helping hand, the person that you really help is you, yeah. Love your neighbor, and he will love you too. If you do the things, if you do the things, things the better may will do <laughs> you got to have that last little part in there <laughs> Hey, everyone. It's Kelly here. Uh, that was uh, called 
A Better Man. I wanted to make sure I got it right. A Better Man. And that's by Eric Schwartz. Yes, the same Eric Schwartz that we play here all the time on New Distant Radio. And I even played last week, who also does that great song, Keep Your Jesus Off My Penis. Uh, You know, I talk about it a lot in my life and here about the poly mind, about how within one person you can have many different aspects and many different perspectives. And Eric is a great example of that. An extremely soulful, soulful singer songwriter who can write something like that, that just breaks my heart in fucking two. What a great song. And then, you know, keep your Jesus off my penis, which is the funniest thing. Uh, <laughs> one of the funniest things I've ever heard in my life. So, uh, there you have it, the lovely poly mind of Mr. Eric Schwartz. Uh, so I just, uh, about an hour ago, I was at John Lovett's Comedy Club checking out the space where I'm going to be doing my new podcast from for Mr. Kevin Smith's Smodcast Internet Radio. And that'll be in a few weeks. Uh, pretty much sure it's going to happen I may have a new time and day for my live show. We're working it all out. I'll let you know. Follow me on Twitter and Facebook and all of that because I'll let you all know. Uh, But, of course, you'll always be able to get everything on iTunes and I think also Stitcher um, because I think Smodcast downloads on Stitcher. I don't know all of this stuff. I just learn it as I need to because otherwise my brain would be too full of things that probably would just make it explode. So, Anyway, and so my first guest on that new Smodcast network will be Margaret Cho, and I'm very excited to have her in the studio with me, or or in the comedy club, I guess it is. And the cool thing about the comedy club is that when I want to, and if I want to, I can do a live with audience podcast, which would be very exciting and fun. And it adds a whole different vibe, because the vibe I do now is uh, much more uh, intimate and quiet. And we're here right now in a room in the middle of North Hollywood somewhere. And of course, I'll be at the comedy club. It'll be empty. It'll just be me and my guest. Uh, and so that, you know, that creates one kind of vibe. And then when you have an audience, that creates a different kind of vibe. So, but it depends on the guest and what kind of thing I do. I, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm evolving. Who knows what's going to come next for me? Um, and I, I will have some big news um, uh, around the uh, media thing uh, in a few weeks. I'm not allowed to talk about it yet. Urgh, I'm so, I can't stand secrets, but I'm not allowed to talk about it yet. But it'll be very exciting when you hear and you, and, and it'll, it'll be really cool. Um, what else is going on? Well, I'm just going to, it's kind of, this is going to be a segue into my guest today. But, uh, you know, I went to Montreal and did my show and then I came home and I just didn't want anything to do with my show after that. After like working for like three months straight, writing and performing and performing and writing and writing and writing and rehearsing and performing. I came back from Montreal and needed to take a very long nap. Uh, and I was sick, so I did. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I need to do, I, I need to get it back on its feet again and I need to start working on it because we're going to tour it. And, uh, and I know I needed to work on my second act. And, you know, as a writer, I'm sure if you're other writers out there listening today, you know, it's that thing. And you, uh, you think about writing, you think, oh, that's an interesting thought. I could be writing right now. And then like something happens in your body, you get like an anxiety thing or, uh, or my thing is, is it's, it's not going to work. I will not be able, the writing will not come ever again. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, but as my guest says, and I was watching a great Charlie Rose about creativity in the brain. And as Chuck Close says, you know, uh, working begets working. And as Dennis Palumbo says, writing begets writing. And it's true. If you sit your ass down and you just start writing, uh, it actually does happen. <laughs> so that's my segue for my guest today, which I'm so excited to have here. 
Uh, I originally encountered Dennis at the Samuel French bookstore. I just graduated, got my master's in psychology, and I was planning to get my hours for licensing and everything. And I thought, you know, I really, my clients, I want to be high-functioning creative types. I wonder who else is out there doing this kind of stuff and who's writing books and who's talking about this because that's what I, you know, want to do. I'm, I'm a media person. I'm a communicator. And I went to Samuel French and really the only person who had a degree and had a license and, you know, had some weight behind them who was writing or talking about this was Dennis. And I thought, there's someone out there else doing that. This is so cool. I want to be just like him when I grow up. And then I got to meet him through a mutual friend of ours, and uh, which which was great because I called my mutual friend one day and he goes, yeah, I'm having lunch with my friend Dennis Palumbo and we're talking about you. And I was like, are, are you suggesting that I should go to therapy or what's going on? So anyway, my guest today is Dennis Palumbo. He's not only, as I said, a licensed psychotherapist who has a full practice of creative people and other, I'm sure, fine neurotic people too, uh, but he's also a very successful writer. This is the man who wrote My Favorite Year, that screenplay. That like one like it's on everyone's top ten. And like I had three people at lunch today saying that no, that's actually my favorite film ever. Uh, because it's, it's still, and it's still, you watch it today and you still cry, 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 cry from it. It's so funny. Uh, he's also, he wrote for Welcome Back, Cotter, on Welcome Back, Cotter, which I want to briefly talk about in a second with him. Uh, he's, his writing book, which I highly recommend if you're a writer, is called Writing from the Inside Out, Transforming Your Psychological Blocks to Release the Writer Within. And here's what I want to say about this writing book. There's a lot of writing books out there, people. A lot of writing books out there. And I've read them all, by the way. You can come to my house and see them on my shelf. Uh, there's some unique, every section, there's such a unique take on different, the obstacles that writers come up with that um, my jaw is dropping. And, I've, and I, I'm a slow reader with this. I Look at how much I've barely gotten through this, Dennis. Uh, but that's only because I like to savor each little section. And uh, so that's his writing book. And then he's got this thriller I have to tell you, you guys, he gave it to me. And you know how it is. People give you your books. And I'm a thriller reader. I love thriller mysteries and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, I'll read his thriller. Okay. I read it in two and a half days because I could not fucking put it down. My whole life stopped. Luckily, it was right after I got back from Montreal and I was looking for a distraction anyway. Uh, and um, uh, it's called Mirror Image. And he's got a new book coming out, which we'll talk about in a minute. Great thriller. If you like it, it's a therapist who gets caught and stuck in all sorts of things, and it's a frickin' page turner, and you can't put it down. I was up till 2 a.m. finishing it one night. Anyway, uh, welcome, Dennis Palumbo. Oh, thank you, Kelly. It's great to be here. It's great to have you in our little, our cute little room here in North Hollywood in the apartment building that looks like a crack house, but it really isn't. <laughs> well, gee, I'm so disappointed. I know. I'm, I'm not... sure we could walk down the street and get some crack, though. I was just going to say, we're in the right neighborhood. <laughs> And I have to tell you also, you know, I've worked with writers my whole life. I've been a writer since I'm like 19. And one thing writers really care about is proper credit. And uh, oh, I, good. I yes. co-wrote My Favorite Year with Norman Steinberg. Okay, thank you. And I'm always glad to remind people. Well, and, and then rightly so. I mean, I know my husband and I co-wrote a, a screenplay. And, and, and having a writing partner in that sense each person brings such a unique thing to that particular, especially each project. So That's right. I apologize for that's okay. Uh, he'll he can he can this way. It. Norman won't put like something horrible in my mailbox. Yeah, well, or so. mine because yeah. you know I didn't say anything. You know, no, I think he'd actually prefer to put it in mine. <laughs> 
we won't we won't get into no, that. Let's, I, not I, let's not get into that. So, um, so yeah, I'm curious. What was? Uh, how early did you start writing? What was your what what genre did you want to jump into to begin with? And well, mostly I came out here to Hollywood. I was in my early 20s, and I wanted to write film and TV. Mm, uh, of course, and, like everyone else in the <laughs> world, I guess. And I couldn't get anyone to read me, uh, uh, so I, I, I went to the comedy store and, and worked there. I was a terrible comic, I thought, <laughs> but, but, you know, and I would work at, at 2 a.m. I would right, do those right. 2 a.m., you know, we're the, we're the only audience for two waitresses <laughs> and the comic waiting to go on after me, and the last thing he's going to do is laugh. <laughs> yeah, <you know>? no, <laughs> he's not giving but, you anything. But on the other hand, I, I usually follow David Letterman, who went mm. on at 145, I don't know, whatever happened to that right. guy. But no, but, I, I think I've heard of him, yeah. But uh, it, was, it was a great time, though. You know, I knew all those guys, you know, Kip Adada and Freddie Prince and wow. David Brenner and all those guys. Um, but uh, I was very, very lucky. Uh, Gabe Kaplan saw my work and, uh, you know, he said, look, you know, you're not a very good comic, but you're (laughs) You're funny. You're funny. (laughs) And so, uh, I said to Mitzi Shore, the, the lady who ran the comedy store, I said, you know, thanks a lot. It's been great. Uh, I'm out of here. And so I went on the road with Gabe and wrote his act with him for about six or eight months. At the same time, I was working with uh, another writer named Mark Evanier, and we were doing spec mm-hmm. TV scripts. What were the specs back then? Uh, the specs were Mary Tyler Moore, MASH, the Bob <gasps> Newhart show. Wow. Yeah, well. Oh, I want to write one of those specs. <laughs> I know. It's still great. I don't know how much work you'd get from writing <laughs> no, one of those right but now. But just for the exercise but of it. But it was really a lot of fun. It was great. And, and uh, you know, we ended up on, on Welcome Back, Cotter. And that's how, you know, we, that was our first, I mean, our, our first assignment, by the way, was the first episode of Love Boat. Wow. Yes, and I still get residuals. In, in, my, in my office, I have a 13-cent residual check <laughs> from our episode of uh, Love Boat that when it played in the Balkans. Wow. Yeah, isn't that great? That is great. Yeah, and it was kind of interesting, you know, because it starred this kid I'd never heard of named Bobby Hedges, and he ended up playing Epstein on, on Welcome Back, oh, Cotter. Oh, wow. Isn't that weird? That but is yeah, weird. Yeah, so we ended up on, on Welcome Back, Cotter. It was a, a great experience. My, my dad did an episode of Welcome Back, Cotter. I know he did. He it, did, where it was going to be a spinoff pilot with, I think, Larry Jacobs, Larry Hilton Jacobs, who was, a, I think he was a disc jockey. Your dad. Yeah, my yeah. dad played a DJ. That's yeah. right. And That's I got right. to meet John Travolta. I know. It was very exciting. I would imagine <laughs> it was. And it's so funny about John. He was, he's such a sweet guy. And it was great because when we were working on the show, he would always come in exhausted every, every day to work because he had been up for three or four hours that night taking dancing lessons and we say what are you doing he says oh i'm in this stupid movie (laughs) and he would bring in the poster you know with the white suit and all we did was razz him and go man you're gonna go down (laughs) you know so little do we know he was about to become the biggest movie star in the world and and actually couldn't happen to a to a nicer guy he was a very sweet guy wow that's that's great i love story it's like when my right before my dad did bill and ted's and i read the script and i thought Oh, what is he doing to his career? You know, I just had no idea. We went on this. I went on the uh, the location, and it was a first time director. And oh, what's going on? I don't. Oh, this is, I can't believe my dad's doing this. And then we went to the uh, cast and crew kind of screening, and it was brilliant. Oh, it's wonderful! It's so brilliant, and to this day stands up completely. And I thought this is going to be amazing mm-hmm. when America gets to yeah. see this. <laughs> So um so how did you go from 
you know, TV writing guy and and film writer to therapist. How did that happen for you? Well, that was, you know, it's. It, I'm going to give you the the, the two minute version yeah. because it was kind of a long process. But uh, I was in therapy myself, and I kind of fell in love with the process. So mm. I started taking classes and reading. And uh, I went back to Pepperdine and started taking these classes in psychology and never really clear in my mind that I wanted to change careers. That seemed insane to me. I had been in show business 14, 15 years. I had been very lucky, and Mm. so things were going fine. But I was volunteering one time for about uh, eight months. I was working at a psychiatric hospital, and I was doing – it was fascinating. I was doing group psychodrama with schizophrenics. Wow. And it was really great. And and one day I was having lunch at this uh, uh, restaurant on Sunset with this producer who was trying to get me to work on a film with him. And I kept looking at my watch because I didn't want to be late mm-hmm. to work with my patients mm. at the psychiatric hospital. Mm. So I'm driving. After lunch, I'm racing down La Cienica. And I had one of those road to Damascus experiences mm. where I said, you know, I couldn't wait to have that lunch be over. And I can't wait to go see these patients. I think I want to change my life. Wow. And I did. And uh, it took six years to mm. get my degree. And, you know, you need 3,000 hours. hours yep. for It took a long, long time. Uh, yep. And I did all my hours and schoolwork on the weekends and at night. So, mm. you know, by day I was wow. in show. I was sort of like the Green Hornet. By day I was <laughs> in show business. And by night I was working with schizophrenics. It was a fascinating. Uh, and it turned out actually having worked with Hollywood producers and network executives <laughs> for 18 years working with schizophrenics was like falling off a log you know <laughs> it's sort of like been there done that you know oh yeah so true because you've already been dealing with narcissistic personality disorder and and some borderlines too and absolutely. absolutely yeah and no question delusional thinking so <laughs> yes. we've all had the had the Kool-Aid here in, in Los Angeles that's right <laughs> So, um, which is, it's just so interesting for me because um, maybe some of my listeners know or don't know, but I got my master's in psychology and was planning on getting my hours and was an intern and started getting my hours. And then, you know, I had my kind of epiphany moment was I was, you know, I would drive home after seeing some clients and I was had really cool creative clients, but I started getting some writers and some actors and then some stand-up comedians started coming into my, my, uh, chamber and I thought this is weird and then I would get in my car and drive home and I would fantasize about being on stage somewhere oh see you know and it was it really came to me it was like okay now I'm really see where my you know where my passion is Mm -hmm. and my desire and I and you know and I I still love the process I I love working with people and sitting with people that's why I'm, I'm I'm a life coach you know I get to do a little bit of that in its own way and certainly work with creative people, but it is you, and it's interesting too, um, because they're two very at least for me because I'm a performer and I'm on stage, and then being in this room and you're anonymous in many ways. Certainly not to your clients, you're not anonymous mm-hmm. because your being is very much a very powerful Absolutely. presence yeah. in the room, and you and you use that uh, for therapeutically, obviously. But but it, it was interesting for me to really get that was like oh. No, I, I don't want to be anonymous in a room somewhere. I do want to be on a stage with a spotlight on me and, and having, to, having to really mm-hmm. honor that myself. So when, so when you're working with clients, what are like some of the more common creative issues that your, your creative clients come in with? Well, I mean, there's sort of the standard ones. Uh, writer's block is a big one. Uh, 
procrastination, mm-hmm. uh, fear of failure, uh, uh, incredible anxiety and depression around rejection, mm-hmm. and and sometimes the just horrible struggle to keep afloat, you know, mm-hmm. to kind of not lose heart. Yeah, those kinds of issues. And but the thing that's so interesting uh, about doing this work is that regardless of of what the presenting issue is it's inexorably bound up in their personal lives, mm-hmm. you know? So within weeks, <laughs> we're talking about, I mean, I just do essentially do regular therapy. Yes. I just happen to do regular therapy with people whose jobs involve their interior world. Right. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And so, um, you know, no one speaks more eloquently about their depression than writers, <laughs> especially if it's a way to procrastinate writing, you know? <laughs> But the reality is we end up dealing with issues of anxiety, depression, shame, substance abuse, relational concerns, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and that's really hard when you're a creative person uh, in a relationship. Uh, uh, there, it, it brings an enormous amount sometimes of, of stress. Um, I remember one time reading something Robert Frost said, which was that uh, the one thing all nations of the earth share is a fear that a member of your family is going to want to be an artist. Mm. And uh, it's amazing how much being a creative person can, can adversely affect a relationship, particularly if your mate or significant other has a difficult time understanding what you're going through. Right. Right. Because uh, I mean, I think about, um, you know, in some ways the creative life uh, abducts the artist and you, if you really want to serve whatever genre you're working in, you have to serve it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that means you do have to turn your back on these more uh, domestic issues. Well, it's a fine balance. I mean, I think of uh, the creative impulse as a gift, and I think we have a responsibility to that gift. Mm. But I also think we have a responsibility as artists to be part of the human condition about which we're supposedly writing. <laughs> right. And so I find that the struggle that creative people have to maintain relationships, to make a living, to cultivate friendships, to become part of the political process, to have an opinion about anything other than the box office mm-hmm. or the bestseller list, mm-hmm. enriches them as artists. Yeah. Uh, it's been my experience anyway. And, and do you see it in, in, in either position? So there's there's the position where the artist fully owns their creative life and maybe turns their back on everything else. And then there's the person who is maybe possibly more enmeshed in the world or in their relationships and environment and can't commit to their creative life. Yeah, I see that a lot. Uh, uh, sometimes I find, too, particularly this is an enormous stereotype, so don't throw anything at me, but often... Women are socialized to yes. believe that they can pursue their creative goals after they fed everybody and the <laughs> house is nice and they've returned their mother's phone call and stuff. Traditionally, men who are socialized at more in terms of being validated for their career yes. tend to feel like, no, I don't care that I'm working 18 hours a day running this show and I never see my kids and my family. I got them a house in the Pacific Palisades. Right. And so they feel not only they feel like burdened by that job mm-hmm. and burdened by the sense that their family is disappointed in how little they see them. And so that struggle, both for men and women, is to keeping that balance. And in my experience, there is no 50-50 balance. Yeah. The balance is 70-30 and it switches from mm. 
one, <laughs> you know, your personal life to your career. It just goes back and forth. Yeah. And, you know, if you're on deadline on a rewrite on a screenplay, you're not going to be, like, yeah. hanging with your family. Yeah. You're just not. But then four weeks later when that rewrite is handed in, I think it's wise not to be on the phone trying to get another job, mm. but going down to Santa Barbara with your family and spending three days in the water. <laughs> you know. Right, right. Finding the natural rhythm in right, that. Right, Absolutely. Right. Yeah, and I know for myself that uh, because my dad was so immersed in his career, and he had to travel a lot, you know, got people who are on the road really – that's a whole nother uh, mm-hmm. layer to it. Uh, because he's, he was physically gone a lot in that way. And uh, and I, I think for me, I, I, I mean, yes, I was completely codependent and enmeshed and have <laughs> worked endlessly for decades on that issue in my life. And yet I know I think I hesitated in committing to my creative life because I didn't want to sacrifice my relationships. I didn't want to sacrifice uh, my social life, which is very important to me. And uh, I feel really privileged right now because I found a way to have a community around me that supports my work. And I'm learning to shut down and shut the door and tell the world that it has to go bye-bye for a little while <laughs> because I need to go inside now and, and do my work. So it's, uh, it, it is. It's, it, it's such a unique dance, I'm sure, for every single individual who faces, faces this. It really is. It, it, everybody has to figure out the rhythm Mm-hmm. of the way in which they want to do their lives, mm-hmm. you know, and and the one where you feel the most authentic. Yes. And, and uh, you know, for most creative people, I find if they can work out that rhythm, then they're not resentful when they're in the part of their life that isn't the other part of their life. Yeah. You know, if you've worked out the rhythm for I'm going to get my work done, I'm going to be fulfilled and engaged by what I'm doing, then you're not resentful when you're, you know, running around the swimming pool with your four-year-old because you're thinking this is also great and cool. Absolutely, and you you get to be fully present in it. Right, that's right. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I came up a a couple of days ago. I was on a walk, and I was – I have perfectionistic issues, you know. What surprise, right? Shocking. An artist has perfectionism. Uh, And I I was really – it kind of struck me. I – and I ended up putting it on Facebook, and people didn't actually get it because I think it's pretty subtle. But I wanted to talk to you a little bit about perfectionism. And really what came forward for me was being a person who wants to be loved and approve. I, the approval thing has been very important in my life, that that has censored me and kept me from being free. And so for me, I really saw this interesting choice point where I asked myself, so Kelly, do you want to be loved? Or do you want to be free? And and the free is really where I want to be because I know if I can be fully free and then loved for that, yay. <laughs> <laughs> but if, if, if I only want to be loved, uh, I that was my first marriage. That one felt like a prison for me, mm-hmm. you know? And I just wonder what your take is on perfectionism and how you help people work around that big thing in the middle of the room that it is. Yeah, well, the bad news is Pfizer's not working on a pill for that. <laughs> um, but the good news is... Actually, uh, I think that's good news, Dennis. I think it's good news, too. <laughs> uh, the, 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 the thing is, perfectionism is really insidious because so much is bound up in it. Not only a yearning for love, I think, but it's also a fear of shameful self-exposure. Mm. If I can yes. write a bulletproof script then I can't be hurt. Mm -hmm. Because if I'm critiqued, I'm injured. 
Yeah. The critique isn't on the material. The critique is a um, is revealing some defect in me mm. that I know is there and I'm trying to hide. And everyone can see if they see me. <laughs> Unless I make the work I do bulletproof, mm-hmm. critic-proof. Right. And, of course, for most perfectionists, no matter how much the public or the critics or their agent or their producer loves it, they never love it enough mm-hmm. because that's a hole that no one outside of you can actually fill. Mm-hmm. And I think once you accept that there's a limit to how loved you're going to be, number <laughs> one, because no one will ever completely understand you, yeah. but also, number two, that you can be free and authentic and loved because the person they're loving is real. Yeah. With flaws, with everything else, with insecurities, with doubts, whatever. And if you're not loved when you have all of those human traits, then what does the love mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ap- yes. That's, that's, th- there's where you have to kind of really sit with the reality of it is. It's like, what kind of love are you really looking for? Right. You know, the love where you're, where you're only going to get the love and the attention when you fit perfectly into this box for that's right. A, B, and C. When you, when you have, that's why I always hate phrases like soulmate and stuff like mm. that. They, they imply yes. that there's some perfect mirror of you and every one of your idiosyncrasies and psychological needs out there. And really what the soulmate image is, is the fantasy of a relationship without conflict. Mm-hmm. And mm. and you can't have a relationship without <laughs> conflict because people have competing needs yeah. every five seconds, yep. you know? Yep. And so the, the, the hard part is to try to – see, I, I think it all comes down to something that is unique to the West as well, not to get too philosophical here. Please, no, we do. Mm. But, uh, but the idea that if you just – uh, look hard enough, study hard enough, take the right medicine, get the right therapy, listen to the right self-help tapes, that there's some perfectible version of you in the future. Yep. And this perfectible version of you in the future will find love, hmm. will write the perfect novel that <laughs> becomes the best seller. You know, it's not you with all your junk. Right. You're not lovable. Right. But if you spend every other day at Bali... And, you know, you go on writer's retreats and you're in therapy three times a week, you will become this lovable thing. Yeah. And I think that is so disastrous. Yeah. I think people have to start with the idea that that who they are is 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 essentially okay. I mean, I've been in therapy on and off for like 18 years. I am as neurotic and insecure as I ever was. <laughs> yes. I just don't hassle myself yes, about it exactly. anymore. And I think that that is going to have to end up being enough for me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember studying uh, in grad school about the concept of the good enough mother mm-hmm. and really getting like I am the good enough human and I am the good enough writer. And when I go on stage, whatever I'm presenting is what it is tonight and it's good enough for this moment and mm-hmm. and it's always going to have elements that are uh, go- going to hit the mark and going to fill something up and it's always going to be slightly missing something mm-hmm. because uh, that's the way the complex planet life systems work. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was in the memo I got. I mean, that's what I think is true and, mm. and in fact... Um, you know, I, 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 I think about stuff like this all the time because as a therapist, part of what 
is sort of uh, in the brochure is we're here on a personal journey and we're working towards something. Right. And see, my belief is the greatest way to change is to become more of who you already are Mm -hmm. and just to accept that. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you challenge some of the things you think it means about you, that you are this way. You know, it's it's like when patients come in and say, God, I'm stuck on this script. And I go, yeah, boy, scripts are hard. And they're there. No, no, no. See, see, (laughs) I bet, I I bet, you know, uh, Robert Town never gets caught stuck on a script. (laughs) Right, right. uh, You know, my being, I, so I'll say, well, what does it mean if you're stuck on a script or if you have second act problems? Well, it means my parents were right and I should have gone to law school. Mm -hmm. You know, it means that this isn't really a good idea in the first place. It means I'm not as talented as I think I am. All these meanings, mm-hmm. which are so self-invalidating, are meanings we assign. Right. There's no intrinsic meaning to anything. We just decide what something means. Right. You know? And so as a result, there's this idea that if I just work hard enough, I can just bang out all the dents and defects in me, and I'll be terrific. Mm. And when I'm terrific, I'll be lovable, and what I do will be successful. And see, my view is exactly the opposite. I think that because we see what successful people seem to look like and the lives they seem to have, I mean, that's why tabloids are successful and that's why reality shows are successful. People are looking at these lives and going, oh, man, if I ever lived there. One of the most powerful things about what I do for a living, I've been in private practice about 24 years. I have people in my practice who are so successful, they're the kind of people I used to envy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? And and I would think their lives must be perfect. Yeah. Well, I know from personal experience their lives are not perfect. Yeah. And that they still struggle with their art and still struggle in terms of how good they are, how yeah. talented they are, what you know. And, you know, uh, to me, you know, frankly, I I think that the 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 whole let me put it this way. There is a sentence that I think will take years off your spiritual journey and save you thousands of dollars in therapy bills. I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> and the sentence is simply this. Everybody thinks the party's happening somewhere else. Mm. Mm. And it isn't. Yeah. It's right now. Yeah. I mean, like it or not, Kelly, this is your party right This is right my now. party. I, this is it. You, you know, it's really interesting you said that because, you know, I've had a lot of good news these last uh, few months with my live show. And, you know, I'm now moving my podcast and I've got some other great news that I'm not allowed to share that I'm really frustrated about. Can, and you, can you give us a hint? It's, it has to do with more media being heard from a bigger audience in some way. And uh, the day after I got that news, that was Monday, Tuesday, I was on my walk. And the song that came into my mind was, is this all there is? Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Because you're right. I still have to get up and and walk my walk and feed my dogs. And and this is the party. Mm. The party does look like this. And, And growing up in this town, I chased parties for a long time. Mm -hmm. And then I would get to them and I would look around and I think, these people are assholes. What am I doing here? No one wants to talk to me and have a real conversation. That's that's great. It, it is very true. It is. Um, it's amazing that we project so much out there and believe that this this is so much better over there. Um, and, and I was thinking when you were talking about the tabloid thing, it's so interesting with the tabloids because it goes one way or the other. We're either 
worshiping the person, or now we have pictures of their cellulite, and we're and we get to be and we get to kind of shame them about their flaws and how human they really are. And there's no middle place where we ho- we can hold both, as they say, the tension of the opposites, uh, where we hold both of those spaces for the people. No wonder we don't know how to hold them for ourselves. Absolutely. In fact, I don't even think uh, it's just an either or. I think you need both parts for the tabloid. You need to idealize them. Yes. It's so the whole storyline then. You can, yeah, crash it's a storyline, the yep. crash. Yep. And then what we love in America and the Western tradition more than anything else is redemption. The comeback kid. The fall of man and man's redemption yes. is the Western narrative. Yes. You know, in the East, if you, you know, fall, they just go, well, kill yourself. <laughs> you know, but here in the West, if you fall, you go on Oprah and you confess. Yeah. And the next thing you know, you're running for office yep. because you've chastened, you've been chastened yep. and you've shown character development. Right, right. Uh, you know, so that's part of the Western tradition in right. terms they, of... Well, it's the hero's our, journey. Yeah, you know, you have to go journey. and have your dark night of the soul and, and that's make your right. bad choices and disappear and... And, and crash your ship up against the rocks. And uh, and it, it is. It's true. It is the redemption thing. And yet, um, boy, you know, that perfectionist doesn't really want to give uh, the self uh, any redemptive no. qualities no. ever. Well, the thing that's so strange about perfectionism is that it's sort of like there's shame and there's perfection. They're two sides of the same yes, coin. Yes, yes. The same thing is operating. Yep. Because if you believe you need to be perfect to be loved then you feel that if you're not perfect, you're unlovable. Right. And that's that's a game you can't win. It's sort of like a rigged roulette wheel. <laughs> Pretty much. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because even when somebody says you are perfect just the way you are, in the very next second, <laughs> you not... might do something so <laughs> doofus that they go, well, gee, you're, you're a little less on the perfect scale. You've dropped down one millimeter. You know, but if you could whip me up a souffle, you know, with a little whipped cream on top, I might put it right back up there again, you know. Well, and it's so interesting, too, because it's it's all about this thought. It's an idea of who you're supposed to be versus really an embodied existence, an embodiment of, you know, this is reality and this is what it looks right now. And I'm really here in it. You know, there's a couple of interesting uh, teachers who, who teach this, you know, which I love. One of them is Byron Katie, who her whole thing is she really says, you know, it's about loving what is and really, really getting what is and getting that it's okay. This is where you are. And let's start from this present moment because it's more of an embodied reality. And then you can use all of your facilities to solve your problems or to to encounter the next moment in some way. But this ideation that we do, we live in our heads. I know for myself, for years, I thought about being a writer. I thought about what all that stuff would be like. And it was fulfilling enough because it was exciting. I could think about it. But uh, so much emptiness comes with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing that we, I think most people discover, particularly creative people, is that doing is a path to being. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. That when you're sitting around thinking about being a writer or a painter or a musician, you begin to idealize people who do it, and then you get resentful that somehow they feel entitled to do it, <laughs> and you don't feel entitled to yeah, do it. Yeah. And then you wonder, well, I guess I don't, if I felt entitled to do it, I would be good at it, so I guess I must not be good at it because I don't feel entitled. And you haven't and done you, anything yet. And you haven't done anything yet, but you've already written the bad review of your first CD. <laughs> 
and you know these are people that are caught in a kind of trap that, yeah. that they can't get out of and 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 I, I I think that that particularly here in the West you know you always the, the way it's always been broken down in you know the East is about being mm-hmm. and the West is about doing mm-hmm. but I think it really is a place where those two can meet is yeah. that if you are present and authentic while you're doing, you're also in being at the same time. I mean, we've all, I mean, you're a performer. You know that when you're really in the flow mm-hmm. and you're working in this kind of easy zone, you know, kind yeah. of way, you're being and doing at the same time. They're like, they're like a DNA molecule that yeah. are wrapped around each other. And you actually can't tell them apart. Yeah, absolutely. And And same thing with writing. When you really get out of your own way, and and start and just and then the, the the writing begets writing thing like anyone out there if you've got writer's block procrastination issues whatever it is it and this is this is what I do uh, Anne Lamott's one of my heroes and she talks about shitty first drafts so every day when I sit down I say to myself a first of all Kelly you're only going to sit down if it's twenty minutes and nothing's coming then fine get up after twenty minutes but you have to do twenty minutes today. And, of course, it always ends up being way more than 20 minutes. And really shitty. I want you to write the shitty, the shitty, shitty, shitty for the first whatever. Uh, don't worry about it. No one's going to see this section. No one's going to – you're going to write it fat and ugly and shitty. And I call it vomiting on the page, basically. And for me, every day I have to do that. It mm-hmm. doesn't get any easier the next day. Why would it get any easier? This is your task. <laughs> this, you know, you have to be a sort of uh... – uh, Bushido warrior, <laughs> you know, the, the warrior code is risk, fail and risk again. Mm. Well, that's what artists do. Mm. And what I mean by writing begets writing is, and, and I taught myself to do this. I used to be a huge procrastinator. I mean, I would have a script on, on deadline and I'd, you know, walk around Dutton's bookstore instead, you know. I always <laughs> which which is a good bookstore. It was, was, it was it a was great bookstore. It was, best. oh, one of the best in yep. the world. But I always had the feeling Dave Dutton was, like, looking at me out of the corner of his eye going, shouldn't you be, Wouldn't you be writing? writing? You know? <laughs> and the answer is always yes. yes. And so <laughs> there was no need to ask the question. But after a while, what I realized I could do is what I mean by writing begets mm-hmm. writing is I would write about procrastinating. Right. I would just write how I'm feeling yes, right now. In I the feel moment. really crappy. This is terrible. I'm sitting here procrastinating, mm-hmm. waiting, wasting my time. Or if I got to a scene that I was trying to write and I didn't know how to write it, I would have my two characters that were going to be in the scene. I'd put them in a bar or in Denny's and I'd just have them talk to each other and tell myself it didn't matter. This yes. didn't go in the movie. Yep. This is just these two people talking. Mm-hmm. And after a while, you get into this kind of rhythm and go, hey, I like what they're saying to each other. This is going to work. And inevitably, not only does it get you writing again, but there's always one or two gems of dialogue yes. that you end up using. Yeah. You know, so my I feeling is I'd rather you spend, you know, an hour writing badly mm-hmm. than an hour sitting at Starbucks bitching about the fact you're not writing to another writer. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, do the math. All the hours you spend sitting with other writers in Starbucks going, Jesus, I really got to get going on this script. Yeah. You should go home and have someone say that. In, in fact, my, yeah. uh, the thing I've often said when I used to teach writing, I would say, look, if you're if you're feeling thwarted and stuck and don't know what to do next, find some character in the story you're working on who feels this way mm. and give them a monologue mm. and just give them, mm. let them give voice to all the things you're feeling. 
And if you don't have a character who's stuck and thwarted and doesn't know what to do next, you better look at the story because mm. that's the human condition mm-hmm. and they're going to have to overcome something. Mm-hmm. So you and your character both have the same journey, mm. which is you've got to accomplish something in the face of resistance. Mm. And I think it allows you to get back into the world of your writing and to love your character and to see how much of yourself is in what you're doing. Yeah. Wow. That's great. See what I told you people about Dennis? He has this amazing, unique shit that comes out of, not shit, but you know what I mean. No, I'll, I'll take shit. That, it's, that's I mean, really, I, I, no one else talks about it th- that way. This is just so wonderful. And, and of course, we're running out of time here because that's what I do. Uh, and because I, uh, we have to have you on again because I, we didn't even get to even talk about like the whole idea of writing narratives and and then being in therapy and discovering your own narrative and rewriting your narratives, life narratives and story narratives. And for me and people like who do what I do, which is autobiographical material, as I'm writing my one woman show, I'm rewriting my relationship with my family at the very same time. So it's like, what's real, what's not, mm-hmm. past, present, future. It's holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> All that good stuff. It is. All that great stuff. It's so juicy. Uh, thank you so much for coming over oh, and doing thank this. thank you for having me, Kelly. I had a great time. It flew by. Yeah, I'll, absolutely. And I apologize to your clients who missed their appointments today. I rescheduled them. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, good. Because I know someone's, you know, having writer's block right now. Even as we speak. <laughs> and I want you to feel the guilt of that, Kelly. It's really... <laughs> It's your responsibility. <laughs> There's someone in Marina Del Rey who's struggling right now. Well, and if that's true, find me on Facebook and I'll uh, and we can we can we can talk <laughs> privately. Uh, so anyway, <laughs> thank you so much again for oh, coming. Really, my pleasure. It's it's so wonderful. It's just so fun for me because uh, I mean, this is the stuff. Like you know, although I do write and, and need to write, I love talking about this stuff because. It's the whole creative process is fascinating to me. How we do this and why? I mean, we didn't even get it. Like the other, I was going to perform a few weeks ago, and I'm backstage, and I'm thinking, really, this is this is what I've chosen to do with my life. I'm going now to go out on a stage and tell people things about my life. Very strange choices, <laughs> and not feel guilty about having such a strange voice of that strange thing that I do. Uh, So anyway, thank you all for listening today and downloading as always. Uh, Next week, very excited. I have Jamie Kilstein. He's got a new CD coming out. As you know, he's a very bold and brash kind of ranting comic and big, huge political activist and, and like ardent vegan. And we'll talk about bacon. He'll really love that. Uh, And thank you for listening and subscribing. And of course, following me on Twitter and friending me on Facebook uh, because that really is the real world. Let's admit it, people. You know, this other stuff, it's all very strange. Uh, and if you have any uh, feedback for me or questions or anything, you can always email me at wfadradio at gmail.com. And uh, we're going to close the show today with this great song, which I've played before, which is by the Clutter Family, which is actually a group of comedy writers who get together as musicians and uh, the name of this song is Life the Movie. <laughs> <laughs>